All right, uh, we're going to undertake, uh, I've been going, I know we've been doing some topical stuff, and I figure that enough is enough, so we're going to undertake a study, and it's a, a life that's been a blessing to me, and um, I, I share with all of you that I have a book called 31 Days Wisdom and Praise, and it's the Psalms and the Proverbs in 31 Day Segments, and that's my devotional. And um, I've come to find that I'm not even reading the Proverbs anymore, and I'm not even reading uh, the Psalms of Korah or anything else. I'm just finding myself drawn to the Psalms of David. And he was called the sweet psalmist of Israel. And um, the more I read what he's written, the more I'm moved by it. And so I want to take a kind of a chronological study through the life of David. And so we're going to begin that tonight and open up to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. And keep your place there and turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. So 1 Samuel 16, Acts chapter 13. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word, and I pray that you'd minister to us tonight through the life of David as we undertake uh, what will be weeks, if not even a few months, to go through this man's amazing life, one that we can all relate to, one we can find strength from, one we can learn from as far as the mistakes that he committed. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless us, as, Lord, we all desire to be just like him in the sense that he's a man after your own heart. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Acts 13 will begin with, this is uh, the Apostle Paul, and he is giving a history of Israel. And he gets down to, uh, in a sense, the patriarchs. And uh, he talks about the, the kingship and, and going through the history of it. And he comes to this interesting uh, conclusion over David's life. Pick up at verse 21. It says, Afterward they asked for a king, and so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, meaning God had removed him, God raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. And then this is the interesting part. It says, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. So we can see in David's life a significance, not only is he an anointed king over Israel, but he's given a title, a man after God's own heart. And then he's given a compliment from the Lord that he is a man who will do all of the Lord's will. And then it goes on to say, as a result of that, that um, from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. So Jesus comes through the lineage of David, lion of the tribe of Judah. And uh, of course, David comes down the lineage uh, through Judah. He's of, the, of that tribe. And if you follow... Jesus' lineage, both in um, Mary and Joseph's lineage, they both come through Judah, and they both come through David. Today, if you're waiting for a Messiah, uh, the records have all been destroyed. We don't know who's who. We, we can't uh, de- determine whether or not they come from Judah or not. Many Jews would say, well, God could reassemble the writings. God could miraculously provide testimony to that. Um, and I... I uh, that, that's a hope that they probably have, but the reality, I believe, is that the Messiah has arrived and he's here. And so as, as we take a look at David and we take a look at Jesus, there's two aspects here. Remember it was written of Jesus, Lo, it is written of me in the volume of the book, I've come to do thy will, O God. Speaking Jesus to the Father, Lo, it is written of me in the volume of the book, I've come to do thy will. And then you see as God refers to David, the Father refers to David by saying, who will do all my will? And we think of David as a man after God's own heart. And as we undertake the study of his life, let's not forget that he's a murderer. He's a liar. He's an adulterer. He actually commits more sins than Saul does. Saul is actually, in a sense, a better leader in some respects than David. Far more gifted, far more talented, physically, uh, obviously, a specimen of of you know intriguing observation as he's head and shoulders above anyone else in all of Israel. Saul is a magnificent specimen. He's an amazing man. He's he's very handsome. Um, people are drawn to him. He has this external natural charisma and a natural leadership ability. And then we see David. And in contrast to David, we're going to see something very interesting. But before we go to First uh, Samuel 16, I have you to go one more place. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. You're going to see why 
When it was written of Jesus, Lord, it is written of me in the volume of the book. I've come to do thy will, O God. We see a contrast between Saul and David. Saul is a, a marvelous specimen of humanity. David, we're going to see, isn't. Uh, we're going to also see, even though the statue by Michelangelo portrays David to be stunning, uh, we're going to see a picture of him in 1 Samuel 16 that's contrary to that. And uh, also we're going to see a similarity between David and Jesus in Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, when we see him and there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him and he was despised and we did not esteem him. You know, we see these pictures of Jesus and he's just radiant and he's stunning. And, you know, yeah, we, we heard, uh, you know, by um, Brian Jones that he was a carpenter and he was ripped. And, and we've heard from Pastor Mark that he's got tattoos down the sides of his thighs and he's riding a white horse. And the reality is in Isaiah 53, he's, he's not a real handsome guy. He may be ripped, but he's not handsome. Uh, he's, there's nothing in his appearance that we'd be drawn to him. Even muscularly speaking, he may have been strong. He may have been a carpenter, but there was nothing about him that, that you'd be drawn to him. He wouldn't have made it on a soap opera or any, you know, stunning, you know, yeah, book cover or magazine cover. The, the scripture clearly portrays that there was no form or comeliness. And, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we would desire him. You look at him and you just think there's nothing here that would draw us to him physically. Um, the, the value that man puts upon appearance, God doesn't. And God would say to Samuel later, you look at the outward uh, aspects of a man, I look at the heart. And so what we see in Jesus, which is interestingly enough, you wouldn't be able to pick Jesus out of a crowd. You can't say, oh, he's the one with the halo over his head. I mean, think about it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, Judas had to betray him with a kiss. He didn't just say, that's the guy over there with the stunning blue eyes that, uh, and, and the massive physique and the halo over his head and, and just find him. There's always a, a rainbow following him everywhere he goes. He's, he's the only Aryan in, a, in an Israelite uh, culture, uh, however we've portrayed him in Western culture. He was, he was Jewish through and through, uh, probably had Middle Eastern characteristics, I'm thinking just because I possess the same qualities, I'm thinking Jesus had a big old nose just like me. Uh, I'm Scottish, and that's why I have a big nose, because air is free. And I, that's a joke there. <laughs> Never mind. Some of you are going, I don't get it. It's, it's, Scotsmen are tight now. We're cheap. Scotch tape, right? You know. <laughs> Think about it now. And, and so here we see the same aspect portrayed in, <laughs> we see the same aspect portrayed in David, and I'll explain to you why. As we take a look at the text tonight, we'll pick up in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, and by the way, Samuel's the prophet of Israel. He's the one anointed by God to anoint the prophets. He's the one who does the bidding of the Lord. And says, now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, saying, I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For the man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? And then he said, well, there remains yet the youngest. There he is, keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him. 
for he, we will not sit down till he comes here. And so he sent and brought him in. And now he was ruddy, which means he, he was uh, red. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever been to Israel. I have not seen a lot of red-haired folks in Israel. And he stood out. Some folks say in, in Africa, if the children have red hair, it's a sign of malnutrition. Um, I can't speculate that that would be the case with David, but he had red hair. It goes on to say, too, that uh, he was ruddy with bright eyes. And the idea with bright eyes is that his, he had light eyes. Um, that was also defined in the Hebrew as weakness. He probably hazel eyes. His eyes weren't brown. Uh, in that culture, you know, we, we tend to esteem blonde and blue-eyed in some respects in certain cultures. In the, in the Hebrew culture, it was not regarded as a sign of strength. It was weakness. So he had light eyes. He had weak eyes. And they were, they were probably hazel in some capacity. He was good-looking, even though he was ruddy, and his eyes were hazel, weak in the estimation outwardly. But still, there was something about him. Has anyone ever seen a picture of Abraham Lincoln? He had Marfam's disease. His features were elongated. His hands were elongated. His face was gaunt. His, his, his gait was awkward. Uh, his appearance when, when he would walk seemed as though he was the most melancholy man on the face of the earth. It, it was said of him that when he walked, it was, though, it was though sadness dripped from every portion of his being. He, he was a man just filled with sorrow. And yet they would also say of him that when you would look into his eyes, there was something about him that was good looking. You look at pictures of him and, and it doesn't strike you as any features. His face is even contorted. It's even uh, uh, misshaped. It's, it's crooked. And yet they said of him that he was good looking. There was just something about whatever it was that he possessed that looking into his eyes, looking into his face, you'd be drawn to him. There wasn't anything to explain why. It was more just his character than anything else. And he had bright eyes, weak eyes, but he was good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And you can imagine Samuel leaning over and whispering, whispering in David's ear as Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. You can imagine as the oil, oil's pouring over David's head, Samuel leans in and whispers to David, you are now the king of Israel. Now, the time that this happened, David's maybe 15 or 16 years old. It'd be 10 to 15 years before he would, he would ascend to the throne. He would lose his family. He would lose his wife. He would lose his best friend. He would lose his position in the kingdom. He would be considered an outlaw, a fugitive. He would be chased through the deserts. We're going to follow his life. And, and you would think at this point when the oil is pouring over his head and the, and the whisper comes from the anointed prophet of all of Israel, you are now the king of Israel, that those would be promising words. They're frightening. I, I imagine, uh, you know, November 4th, frightening words. You have been elected. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking. Um, some of you think that that's exciting. I've been to Sacramento. Although I long to, to, you know, do whatever is called of me to do, I've been through there. It's a lot of work. David had no idea at 15 or 16 what was being said of him. No idea really what this meant. And yet there was also something significant about it because David didn't hinder. He didn't fight it. He didn't, he didn't resist. You don't see any response to Samuel. He's silent. He's silent. You know, and when in doubt, don't open your mouth. You may be considered a fool, but don't open your mouth to confirm it as such. And David, in his silence, probably appeared to be contemplative or, contemplate, or contemplative, however you like to pronounce it. And, and here he is, uh, just probably baffled by it all. 15, 16 years of age, and oil is dripping down his clothing, and, and Samuel would do it in such a fashion that it would be very apparent to all who are present. But taking a look at this and going through it in, in relation to what God is doing in these 13 verses of 1 Samuel 16, what God is doing. I can go through the story of Samuel's life. He, he disobeyed the Lord. He tried to hide his sin. He, he was told to kill all the men and the women and not take any of the spoils for himself. And he, he kept the best of the fatted sheep. He kept the best of the lambs and the ewes and everything. He disobeyed God. 
And, and Samuel confronted him. And, and he, he went on to blame the people. He went on to blame everyone but himself. He made excuses. He, 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 he lied. He never took responsibility. And God tore the kingdom from him. And as Saul grabbed his robe, the robe tore. And, and, and God said, there wasn't anything I wouldn't have done for you. And yet here, here Saul realizes that he's, he, he loved the authority more than he loved the God who instilled the authority. He loved the power. God had called Saul to speak truth to power. Saul remove the truth to embrace power. This is the great danger. You know, knowledge puffeth up. Pride cometh before a fall. A haughty spirit before destruction. And, and, and as we see this in Saul's life, he's losing the kingdom. God has removed it from him. And, and, and Saul doesn't know who it will be. The word has gone out that it would be a man after his own heart, after God's own heart. Saul has no idea who that is. He's going to hunt that person down. He's going to scour all of Israel to find who his, his successor is to somehow try to thwart the plans of God and kill him. He'll do everything in his power to kill David. Saul has fallen madly in love with power, madly in love with power. And the reality is that, that God is pointing out to David and to Jesse and to all of Jesse's sons and David's brothers that you, you reflect the world and I, and I want to show you what God says about the things of the world and what we place value on. We place value on titles. We place value on the external. I remember when people used to ask me, who are you? Well, I, I'm, a, I'm a manager with Unilever. I, I own a company car and a house. I, I fly first class. I'm, I'm the son of Captain uh, Roy and Louise McCoy. I was born in Coronado. My mother is the daughter of the American Revolution, and my dad is a member of the Sons of the American Revolution. We're sons of the Golden West. Um, we have a long heritage. We're Scotch-Irish. We're Covenanters. I could go through the whole lineage to describe who I am. God looks at that, and he says, no, you are a sinner saved by grace. You, you, are, you are a pile of dirt. And apart from me, it, in you dwells no good thing. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. We think because we arrive at some place in life or that we have wealth or we've amassed wealth that we are somehow people of privilege. God doesn't give you gifts so that you can turn your nose in the air and block the sun from the others to see. He doesn't give you gifts or promotions so that you can lavish yourself with greater gifts. He gives you these things so you can have a greater influence in life to bless others. If you've received a doctorate, it's, it, if you, you're a doctor, you can do great things. But the Bible says, unless the Lord builds a temple, we labor in vain. Only what's done for Christ will last. It's going to echo in the halls of eternity. Millions of doctors have come and go. You can't even name them. Years and years of education, engineers, uh, professors, doctors, PhDs, psychologists, psychiatrists, scientists. Few have left a name for themselves, but they fade in time over history and and, and yet, what are those things that remain significant? What are the realms of the world that have been dr dramatically changed? Where do we see those who are esteemed in history that have changed cultures? Those are men that find themselves in harmony or in, in step with God. I've taken our, our Friday morning men's Bible study through the life of Winston Churchill. This is a man whose life was significantly impacted, you would think, by his, his father, who was, who was the Duke of Marlborough. This, this, this man was, was highly esteemed in all of England. He held, he held a, a, a cabinet position. He was in the, the House of Commons. He was a lord. He was a chancellor. And yet, no significance in Churchill's life. Of his mother, he said, uh, of, of his mother, he said, I loved her, but at a distance. In Victorian England, when children would, would even be seldom, if, if, if ever, entertained by the parents and they'd be brought in by nannies or, or those that would care for the children for a brief moment in the evening and they'd have to be well dressed to spend time with their parents even in Victoria, England where the children had little time with their parents the Churchill home was even worse than that Randolph Churchill said of his son he was retarded imagine that a man who saved western civilization his father considered him retarded his father who died of syphilis 
And where did this man find this strength? Where did this man find the ability to to muster an island that was surrounded by an enemy when everyone had left and he would inspire an entire nation to fight back the fascist state of Germany and then also take on a two-fronted war like the United States and save Western Europe? That would be the first to call uh, and and declare the Iron Curtain of, of communism. The one who would be so far, far advanced in, in, in his ability to see foreign policy that, that for years following his death, people would, would read his writings and he would, he would dictate. Where did this man come from? An obscure woman, Mrs. Everest. Nobody knows of her. When Churchill died, her picture was by his bedside. Not his parents not his wife's, his nanny. He called her womb. She was a product of the revivals under George Mueller, Charles Spurgeon. This woman loved the Lord, gave Churchill a Christian worldview that he would actually declare, and we would laugh at it years later when Bush would use the same term of an axis of evil. He was the one who came up with this idea that there is good and evil. In politics, to declare it from the position of prime minister. He'd be ridiculed and mocked. He would understand free enterprise. He'd understand how wealth is created. He would take these precepts and these conditions from the scriptures themselves. He memorized whole passages. He memorized the entirety of the book of Ephesians. He won awards because womb would teach him. He would reject that faith when he would be in South Africa in the Boer War, and then he'd be imprisoned, giving up all hope of living. He would do his best to to escape. He was a correspondent for England. He would escape, and there when he thought he was going to die, he cried out to God. His faith was restored, renewed. He wasn't a great student, but as a result of his his heart for God, all of a sudden this desire to learn became ever greater. And while he was stationed in India, he began to read voraciously, understanding history. He would write the greatest volumes of world history that we have to this day. He would write a concise history of of World War II. One of the most prolific writers, he would win a Nobel Peace Prize. He was the, the greatest man of the 20th century. He was beloved in England. Late, he was in his 90s when he died. You look at the the outline of his funeral that he had dictated, everything that he put in his funeral was to declare Christ. Fascinating life. These are the men that are remembered. These are the men that the minute you quote them, the room goes silent. These are the men whose words carry weight and substance. The same with Abraham Lincoln. Born in obscurity, father distant. And you see how his mother would change his life. Not just his his birth mother, but his stepmother. His birth mother would die of milk disease, poison from the plants that the cows ate. Horrible way to die, and he would witness it all. And he would go through a period of agnosticism, atheism, rejecting the truths, but always returning to the foundation that was laid by, by his mother. He'd lose three children. His wife would go insane. He would oversee the the attempted destruction of the Union. He would witness the death of 650,000 troops that he would sign his name to. And yet when you quote him today, the room goes silent. People listen. His words carry weight. They carry substance. It's fascinating to me. The minute you just attach Abraham Lincoln to a quote, people go silent. You attach Winston Churchill to a quote, they go silent. Why? What gives them significance? They're men of obscurity. He was born in a log cabin. He, his, 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 his mother, his birth mother was, was she was a, a bastard's daughter, I, I guess is a way to describe it. Someone of nobility in Virginia had, had uh, r- raped a servant. He was birthed from this, or she was. No lineage, no heritage. 
And they were all designed in the early days, especially when, when people would leave the, the, the monarchies of, of Europe to come to America. They always believed, and they were instilled in them, that the monarchies had special preference because they were a higher realm of human being. They would struggle with that in, in, in America. And they, they would try to define you that you have no heritage. Uh, we, we talk about slavery. Subhuman. There's also white slavery. My family comes from this. The Irish, they were enslaved by the British long before the blacks were, were enslaved. Africans were enslaved. It was cheaper to kill a, an Irishman than it was an African. It was, it was 20 pence to get a, an, an African to the slave trade. It was five pence for an Irishman. And, and, and then they'd come to America and you'd see in, in, in the Civil War, there would be riots in New York between the blacks and the Irish. They were fighting for the lowest rung on the ladder. And yet today, we're nobility. Where does this come from? How do men and women rise from the ranks, and yet the world would tell us that we're not good enough? There's nobody in this room that's less than anyone else. There's a calling on every life, a calling on every heart. And the joy of this story and what moves me about David is the relatability of his life to every one of ours. Think about this. Samuel's mourning for a man who can be on the cover of any magazine in America. Samuel's mourning for a man that could lead any nation, any, any state. Samuel's mourning for a man who is a specimen of, of physical beauty, intellectually capable, orchestrating and organizing like you can't imagine. His, his, his skill set is, is beyond anyone in all of Israel. And he's mourning at the demise of a man who's compromised his life before God, who's loved power. And we raise these things and we embrace power. And, and Samuel is, is mourning for the, the absence of Saul. And God says to him, Saul's not my man. For I have provided myself a king among Jesse's sons. Jesse, an obscure Bethlehemite, a backwater city in all of Israel. I've been there, it's nothing. You blink, you miss it. Even today, Samuel's afraid of even traveling there. He's fearful of Saul. He's fearful of the power Saul possesses. And yet, he is the instrument of God. He's the spokesperson for God. And he's fearful of the government of man. Imagine that. Imagine that. God's messenger is afraid of the government of man. And Samuel is trembling and fearful. God comforts him. He meets him where he's at. He says, we'll do a sacrifice. Everyone likes sacrifices. Bring a heifer with you. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one that I named to you. God says, I'll name him. You just bring the sons. I'll name them. So Samuel did what the Lord said. So there's obedience even though there's fear. Faith takes over. He went to Bethlehem and the elders of the town trembled at his coming. They're fearful too. Samuel's in cahoots with Saul. Why are you here? Saul's at war with anyone who's godly. Saul's at war in his own soul. Saul's at war with God. He's at war with men. And, and the Bethlehemites are scared. Samuel's here. What, what, could, what could this mean? Do you come peaceably? He said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Set yourselves apart. Stop drinking. Stop carousing. Cleanse yourself. Prepare. Because God's going to speak to your city. And come with me to the sacrifice. Blood must be shed for the remission of sins. We're all going to sanctify ourselves with, with the representation of the Lamb of God that would, would come. And by faith, this bowl will represent that blood that will be shed later in the history upon the cross at Calvary of the Savior that's been spoken of throughout all of the age in the history of Israel. But tonight it will be the blood of a heifer until the Lamb of God comes. You will look forward to that point in time by faith, and saints today will look back on that point in time, but by faith we'll all be saved. We'll trust. We'll wait. And so as he declares to them to consecrate themselves, he says to Jesse, consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Consecrated said, you are about this tonight. This is about you and your family. You make sure you're sanctified. I've consecrated you. 
You're sanctified. You you can sanctify yourselves. I have consecrated that it's special pertaining to you, but you yourselves must prepare your hearts to receive what I have. So it was when they came that Samuel looked at Eliab. This is the oldest, the most handsome, stunning. He's got all the gifts. And you can imagine Jesse parading him first. (laughs) Oh, we got this guy. Obviously, there's something special happening today. And this is the one I want to bring forward. Anyone who has multiple children... You say you don't have favorites, or you say there's some that you don't maybe look at. And there's, there's certain things that if you look at all of your children, you'd say, well, if, 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 they were, if, if I had a requirement for this, this is the child I'd put forward. And if they were asking for this, this would be the child I would put forward. And if they're asking for this, this would be the child I'd put forward. And if they're asking for a leader, immediately Jesse says, well, Eliab is the one you're looking for. There isn't anyone more capable, more gifted. He's eloquent in his way to communicate with other people. He's an organizer. He's a natural born leader. He's handsome to add. He looks good on a camera. And so he brings Eliab, and, and, and Samuel looks at him, and, and Samuel immediately fawns over him. Oh, Jesse, my goodness, where did he come from? I mean, it's like he's chiseled out of granite, my goodness. He is so stunning. And Samuel declares before Jesse and before God Almighty, he says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Surely the Lord's anointed is before God himself. Look at him. Just look. I think our work here is done. <laughs> Who's with me? And everyone's like, oh, yes, 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 Eliab. Oh, my goodness. And the girls, mm, he said, yes. <laughs> and you can imagine Eliab just walking up, just like, hey, what's up? <laughs> As he comes forward, surely the Lord's anointed is before God himself. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look at his appearance. What are you doing? Oh, Lord, look, don't look at his appearance. Okay, what do I do now? I can't see anything. You've been in this sanctuary. You've been in this building. As a blind woman would speak from this pulpit, yes? Yes. She had better eyesight than anyone in the room. What did she see? She saw the heart. How is it that I go through the course of a day and Gail McWilliams can call me and be so in tune to the Lord that she can speak a, a, something to my heart that is so pertinent to the day? Where does that come from? She can't see anything physically. God says to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I've refused him. I don't care how gifted he is. I'm not impressed with his qualifications. I'm not impressed with his stature or the multiple titles behind his name. God's not impressed with any of us. We rise to this level where we think we've achieved something and we're God's gift to mankind. No, we aren't. We're in the way. An attitude like that is, is humility before honor. Pride before a fall. Haughty spirit before destruction. He says, I, I've, I've rejected him. Close your eyes. I'll tell you what I see. I see a heart deceitful above all else. I see a man consumed with himself. I see a man who walks with a gait and a strut that de- 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 re- reveals who he is. I can see it a mile away. I can see the way that he looks at somebody when he's shaking a person's hand because there's somebody of influence further down. He looks past the, 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 the smaller folks and looks further to see who is the wealth in the room. I, I know this man. I've watched him since he's a child. I've seen the, the compromises. I, I've, I've seen the struggles. He has no heart for me. What, what are you thinking, Samuel? Do you think because he's physically gifted and he's a specimen of, of beauty that somehow he is a gift to me? Do you, do you think I need anyone? I keep his heart beating and his lungs moving. I've fashioned him. He's been fearfully and wonderfully made in his mother's womb. 
I know everything about him. I know every fiber, every DNA in his structure and his being. And I know that when he has come to a place where he has the opportunity to serve me, he serves himself. I don't, I, 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 I can't use him. He's refuse, he's dung. I've rejected him. Fascinating concept. See, 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Philippians 3, 8 and 9 says, as Paul writes, yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish. The Hebrew translation is animal droppings. Dung. Manure. Poo. I count them as dung that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. I want a man wholly dependent on me. You know when Paul wrote this? You know, he spoke probably seven languages. Do you know he'd memorized the, the Pentateuch? We're lucky if we have John 3.16. Do you know he'd memorized all of Psalm 119? You know, he had the equivalent of doctorates because he, 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 he to, to be a, of the highest echelon in the priesthood, he was the equivalent of, a, of an attorney, a lawyer. You read Romans, it, it's an, an unbelievable case of law. He wrote that. The concepts that he would fathom and the things that he would write. And he would look at this upstart move of, of Christ and he would persecute Jesus' followers. He was on his way to Damascus to kill them. He had letters of intent to kill them. He held the cloaks while they stoned Stephen and killed them. And as he's riding to Damascus, he's knocked off his high horse. That's where we get the term. It's biblical. He's blinded so that he can finally see. It's amazing how blindness will humble you and you have to be led by another. man who wrote Amazing Grace. Anyone know? Anyone know who wrote Amazing Grace? John Newton. He was the one who would say in his blindness in his later years, I once was blind, but now I see. He could never get the thoughts of the slaves that he had imprisoned in the bowels of the ship out of his mind. They would say of amazing grace that the words are by John Newton and the melody is unknown. They say it's an, a West African sorrow chant with the minor keys. He'd hear the moaning, the songs from the ship's bowels and he would live with that. That's why it's such an amazing song because it just brings cultures together. It's almost sung in every language. It's profound. It resonates. has substance. You sing it and every room is moved. Everyone goes silent. And yet, he was the one who was blind and then he could see. He never saw color anymore. And the same would happen with, with Saul who had become Paul. Saul means big, Paul means little. God would humble him. Humility before honor. And this is, this is what's happening to Samuel. God's saying, do I need to blind you? You don't see what I see. Why is it we're moved by these things? He says, you look at his appearance in verse seven and his physical stature but you're not to look at that. I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. The heart. Paul would write in Acts 15, So God who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, and just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them. Speaking of the Jews and the Gentiles, they struggled with this. They thought themselves superior 
Peter was struggling over it. And then he would come to terms with it. He made no distinction between us and them, Peter would say, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? He would say, God's made no distinction. He's purified their hearts by faith. The scripture would go on to declare in 1 Samuel 16 that David was a man after God's own heart. How? His heart was purified by faith. It doesn't mean that there's anyone pure in the room. It doesn't mean that they're any more noble than anyone else. I, I don't care if you walked into the room tonight and you were on a roll of purity. Good for you. Praise the Lord. Your walk is substantial. You're hearing from him. It doesn't make you any better. You are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And this idea of the purifying of the heart comes by faith. Do you trust him? This idea of a man after my own heart is a man who is in harmony and is in, and in step with my, my will and my purposes. I mean, you think about that. Abraham Lincoln would stand against all odds for the realization that was given to him by God that no man would be enslaved because of the color of his skin. Even when they would declare that slavery was legitimate based on the scriptures themselves, and he would say, no, that is indentured servitude. It never dealt with the diminishing of a human being and calling them less than anyone else. Never in the scriptures. He would stand firm on that, and he would he would delve into the scriptures and he would become a student of them. He would voraciously read the scriptures. And this, this is a man who began to see. He began to fall in stride and in harmony with the steps of God. He would write in his second inaugural address. He would write in the, in the public humiliation of America when he would call for public fasting and, and humility and prayer. Crying out to God. This is a man who understood what it meant to be still and, and know that he was God and, and to be silent and to cry out to God in humility and sacrifice and fasting and supplication. He would call the nation to it. Could you imagine a president doing that today? Yet Abraham Lincoln had read that. It's a fascinating article signed by the, the legislature. The president put his hand to it in signature. God would say, I look at the heart. Verse eight, so Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. Samuel's not getting it. Okay, Eliab's not quite there. Abinadab, good looking, maybe a little bit more what you're looking for. You're not listening to me. I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I, I don't want you, I don't want you to segment devotion to God. It's all or nothing. Don't balance it with what you think the world needs and, and, and what you think it would suffice me. I want a man wholly in harmony and in step with me. And God would say, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. and He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. You can imagine Samuel going, no. Not him either. Then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. No, 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 no. The Lord has not chosen these. Jesse goes, I'm out of sons. Imagine that. Seven of his sons passed by. Number of completion had to have been the last one. Where's the eighth? I've given you all my sons. I mean, Samuel came to Bethlehem, told Jesse, I consecrate your family, you sanctify yourselves, and you come and stand before me. Jesse, consecrated with his family, sanctifies his family and brings them to Samuel. What is this telling us? This is my family. That punk out there, he ain't worth your time. That kid is whacked. You have no idea what that kid's like. 
all day long, harp and lyre, just la la la, God, 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 God. He just comes back and his hair's weird. His eyes are light. He's weak, worthless. And, and he just rejects him. He doesn't even want him to he, he doesn't exist. He's not part of this family. He's not part of this family. And, and as he rejects him, Samuel has, has to say to Jesse, okay, we've been going through this whole lineup here. Knowing all of them, I didn't come up here for nothing. And Jesse's like, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. These all the ones I, 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 this is it. Okay, the Lord brought me up here, said to consecrate your family, sanctify yourself. You've passed all your kids, seven of them. No, 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 no. Uh, God's been hammering me and I'm standing here and you're telling me this is it. Mm-hmm. That's it. No more. So Samuel has to inquire. Are all the young men here? I did uh, consecrate myself, Jesse says. I did sanctify myself. Lying is not acceptable. Especially as God's prophet's here. Apparently he's speaking to you and I, I don't want to die. Uh, there remains yet, and the scripture declares it youngest, in the Hebrews defined as the least of these. And there's one. One more. Really not worth your time. I would have brought him I knew you were on a mission from God. This kid is a waste of your time. I didn't bring him. And he's going through this whole explanation. He's keeping the sheep. And that, just, that should tell you. That is the profession for the unclean. He can't even go to temple with us because he's handling animals. He deals with dead animals. He's killed a lion and a bear. I don't think he killed the lion. I don't think he killed the bear. I think it's a story he made up. He brought the carcass to us. Now he's unclean. He's out there. I can't even bring him. You want to talk about consecrated. I, I'm doing what God said. That kid, we have him tend the sheep. He needs to be alone. He doesn't need to be here. You don't need to be there. Trust me, that kid is whoo-hoo. He's a couple hot dogs short of a picnic. His intended doesn't pick up all the stations. His elevator doesn't go to the top floor. He only has one oar in the water. He's not right. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Now they're all like, well, we've been standing, it's hot. Hurry up, run, because I am exhausted. And they run out there to go get David. You can imagine David coming in, you know. He just, he just you know, goofy looking. I, I, it's the picture I have. He's just odd. He's 15 or 16. His voice is probably changing. He's, he's probably got acne. I, if they had braces, he would have had them. And, hey, what's up? He's got all the, you know, the gear and everything and the rubber bands. And, what? And I, I marvel at my, my 15-year-old. You know, just, I've shared this. He, he, he's growing so fast. He doesn't even know what to do with his limbs. He doesn't know what to do with his body. He's just, he's sweet. He's, you can see that he's going to be, he's handsome. He's just, He's just not there yet. He's and he doesn't eat. Wow, I have an extra two inches. Where'd that come from? You know, and I, 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 it, I, now feelings coming in. He's growing so fast. He's voracious, hungry all the time. And I can, I just see, I, I see Daniel. I see David. I just see him. I look at him. I think this, this is a picture of David. And he, he brings him back. He brought him in. He was ruddy, bright eyes. He was good looking. But there's still an awkwardness about him. His hair's red. His eyes are light. He's weak in the estimation of the Israelites. He's still good looking. And the Lord said, arise and anoint him for this is the one. And at that moment, this is what touches me. Second Chronicles 16, 9 says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who could know it? 1 Kings eleven four. 4, when it would speak of David's son, it says, For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. David would write, 
in Psalm 51, after he would commit adultery with Bathsheba and be confronted by Nathan the prophet, he would say, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I have acknowledged my transgressions, my sin is always before me, against you and you only have I sinned. I've done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop. I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And then he would say, Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. (laughs) Fascinating. He would write in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 51 was written after Nathan confronted him about committing adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah the Hittite and lying. Nathan confronts him silently in a room. David could have killed Nathan and called it a day. What does he do? He writes a psalm that everyone in Israel would sing. His heart was rended and broken before God and before the people. He, was, he never hid his sin. He, 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 he didn't excuse it. He didn't blame others. He repented of it, and he found himself in harmony and in step with God. You're going to veer. You're going to turn. You just, you just go right back. Keep a short account with God. That's why the Bible says, forget what is behind. Strive for what is ahead. Take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of you. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You have been predestined, foreordained under good works, that you would walk therein. Satan wants to get you off course. He wants to put you in a cul-de-sac. He wants to derail you. David understood, I, I, I know what that's like to be derailed. I cast that behind me. I repent of it. I confess it. And I hold on. I cling to the cross. I cling to my Savior. Cast me not away. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit in me. Help me, God. This is a man after God's own heart, not a man who's sinless, not a man who's talented, not a man who's gifted, not a man with an alphabet soup after his name. This is a man who was the least in his father's estimation. This is a man that the world would reject. This is a man that there was nothing in him that we would be drawn to him. But lo, it is written of me in the volume of the book, I've come to do thy will, that God would declare through the mouth of of Paul himself that David would do my will. What is his will? That we would forget what is behind. We'd confess and repent. We'd turn away and turn to and hold to him and keep our eyes on him, the light of our life, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. 